2: Saturday, March 5th, 2022. I'm Grinnell Scott. The U.S. has established an open line of communication with Russia in hopes of avoiding further escalation in Ukraine. But the situation there is dire at best right now.
0: It looks like an apocalyptic scenes in cities across Ukraine. It is devastating and it is only just beginning. I'm Chad Perkman.
3: President Biden addressed the nation with the backdrop of the ongoing war in Ukraine and new CDC mask guidelines.
1: The president wasn't just addressing the American people uh, with the State of the Union chat. He, was, he, he had to address the Ukrainians. He had to address NATO.
3: This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
2: It's been more than a week since Russia and its massive military force invaded Ukraine. Several major Ukrainian cities have defied the odds, thwarting Russian attacks since the invasion began. The United States, along with its allies, has implemented multiple sanctions, no-fly zones, and dispatched military aid in support of Ukraine. But the situation as it stands today appears to be a battle of dwindling hope for Ukrainians defending their land and their sovereignty.
0: The Russian military, about 92% of those 150,000 forces and ballistic missiles and other armaments, heavy armaments that were surrounding Ukraine are now moving in three directions.
2: Fox News national security correspondent Jennifer Griffin.
0: On both the capital city, Kiev, as well as uh, several significant cities, the second largest city, uh, Kharkiv, has been facing very, very heavy bombardment, um, as well as cities down in the south. So this, the Russian military is moving, grinding along with the goal of taking over all of Ukraine. Any doubts as to Putin's plans? He has made it very clear in the phone calls to European leaders in recent days that he will not stop and he will not withdraw his troops until he controls all of Ukraine.
2: That brings up the point that we have heard so much about sanctions and what they are intended to do to Vladimir Putin and Russia. But as I'm hearing you tell me at this point, really for Putin, those sanctions don't matter. It's I want Ukraine and nothing you do is going to stop me from getting it.
0: The sanctions are the the strongest sanctions that the U.S. and allies, uh, European allies, NATO allies, have ever in the history of sanctions been able to pull together and impose on another country. Putin and Russia have basically put themselves into the category of Iran and North Korea. They do not have access to their uh, central bank reserves, which Putin was planning to use to finance his military action, his war in Ukraine. Um, there are indications that he—I mean—that that he is closing down his borders. He has taken all the media, all the any media that's independent, offline in Russia, so the Russian people don't know what's happening inside Ukraine. He all the independent uh, stations that that you know might have been able to to broadcast what was happening in Ukraine. They were all slapped with $15,000 fines and, and are threatened with going to jail if they report any negative news about what's happening in Ukraine with regards to the Russian military and the number of civilian casualties. We're seeing carpet bombing of, of civilian areas we are seeing artillery shells hitting a residential areas it looks like an apocalyptic scenes in cities across ukraine it is devastating and it is only just beginning but putin is shutting down all access to the outside world to his own people um, facebook twitter all of those Google, he has now made it so it's impossible for young Russians to get any information. Uh, We heard President Zelensky, the Ukraine leader, address the thousands of Europeans who were in capitals across uh, Western and Eastern Europe tonight. He addressed them and said that if the West and if Europe does not stop Putin in Ukraine and stop the killing and stop his attempts to basically swallow up a sovereign nation that, that he will not stop with just Ukraine.
2: If there has been any inspiring part about this conflict, it's the stand that the Ukrainian people are taking. Do you get a sense or do you have a sense as to how they are holding up? They are being brave and fighting these Russian troops uh, as they advance towards Kiev. Uh, How are they holding up as you've been able to glean from from your information?
0: they're being slaughtered right now. We are seeing scenes that we haven't seen since World War II inside Ukraine. They are the toughest fighters and and the bravest leaders that I've witnessed in my career of covering war, which spans now 26 years, and yet, the scenes of devastation in terms of civilian casualties, the types of weapons being used that are not precision-guided weapons, uh, the women, children, grandmothers, the already one million Ukrainian refugees have flowed into Poland and neighboring Hungary and Romania, The Pentagon expects that up to 5 million refugees will flow into Europe, but it could not end there There 44 million people under attack tonight inside Ukraine. The scenes are Devastating and then you have that fighting uh, outside the 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 attack on the nuclear facility uh, the uh, Nuclear hydroelectric facility last night, which could have led to another Chernobyl Uh, The situation in Ukraine is a tinderbox. It is something that everyone should be concerned about and it is not clear how this is going to end
2: as far as Americans in Ukraine have they evacuated or are they headed towards Poland are they already there
0: Many Americans did evacuate because the State Department had, had been warning for so many weeks, if not more than a month, that they needed to leave. And so the 82nd Airborne has been based over in Poland, and it, with the idea that they would help any Americans that, that were, were coming across into Poland. Most of those uh, refugees, all of them at this point, are coming overland, but they were able to get flights out uh, before the fighting, before the uh, invasion began on February 24th. Uh, The ones, the million or so refugees who have come over, there've only been really, we've heard of dozens of Americans coming across, but not large numbers of Americans. Many of them had already left, but some are still stuck behind because many of them have chosen to stay. Many of them have chosen to stay and fight, but we don't have large numbers. And we do know that the 82nd Airborne has not been called upon to have to help those Americans coming into Poland. Most of them coming in have the means to then get on onward flights and uh, stay in hotels and, and, and leave from there. But the Harrowing scenes of of families, women and children, and grandmothers who are flowing across the border into Poland. the The amount of uh, you know trips that normally would have taken eighteen would have taken six hours are taking eighteen hours. A, a trip that is just forty miles to the border from Lviv to Poland, the Polish border. That forty miles, which should have taken less than an hour, is taking in um, twelve and fifteen hours. To, for those people, and many of them have to walk, and it's cold, and, the, and the, the trauma that you see in the eyes of these refugees crossing into Europe is something I haven't seen in a long time.
2: Just a couple of other things for you. I know you've got a lot going on in and we appreciate your time, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Um, As far as, and we we know the President of the United States talked with leaders of Poland on Friday. We understand the Vice President of the United States, Vice President Harris, will be in Poland to start the new week. Uh, Any ideas as to uh, what her itinerary may be? Is, Is she going to be firsthand seeing some of the activities of the military folks there?
0: Well, I imagine that that, um, that she would be meeting with the um, 82nd Airborne leaders who are there. But more importantly, and the reason so many U.S. military and uh, civilian leaders are going to Poland is that they are trying to bolster NATO's eastern flank. They want to reassure the article five nato allies remember article five suggests an attack on one is an attack on all and the real concern is how to contain this terrible war to ukraine and not allow it to spill over to poland and the baltics because that would then require the u.s and its allies to get into what would in essence be a war with russia and both with those uh, parties being nuclear powers. That is something everyone is trying to avoid.
2: Last thing I have for you is, I know the United States NATO allies have been supplying Ukraine with a lot of equipment. Where do we stand with that? this, This is a constant flow that's going into Ukraine at this point.
0: It's a constant flow and it's been incredible. We had a briefing this morning to get some uh, an idea of how much weaponry has actually flow, been flowed in even after the Russian invasion. Um, the, every day since the invasion, uh, U.S. military assistance uh, in the form of weaponry has been flowing into Ukraine, which is incredible since no U.S. planes are flying in at this point so that means that it's coming overland. What we know is that uh, back in November, $60 million of security assistance uh, was given to Ukraine. In December, another $200 million of military aid was given. That included some of these javelin missiles, these anti-tank missiles that have been so effective in hitting Russian uh, tanks and and vehicles. By the end of January, all of that, $200 million had been delivered. And then just last Friday, three, 350 more million dollars of U.S. military aid was announced by the White House, and we're told about 70% of that has already in recent days gone into Ukraine. This, in terms of my experience, is is the fastest that I've ever seen uh, military weaponry uh, flow into a war zone. Usually it takes months to get permissions, but a lot of this was pre-positioned and now it's been compressed into a process of, of hours, not days, and days as a opposed to months in terms of getting these weapons to the Ukrainians. The problem is there's an endless need for more weaponry. And what President Zelensky really wants is for NATO to set up a no-fly zone to stop the the Russian military from bombarding his people. The problem with that, and we've heard from NATO leaders as well as the, the White House and Pentagon, uh, there's no plan to set up a no-fly zone because uh, it would be very difficult to do so, given the fact that Russia is is a nuclear power, and it would very quickly find U.S. warplanes and Russian warplanes fighting each other over Ukraine, and that's something everyone wants to avoid
2: it is a devastating and a very dire situation in ukraine Uh, i know a lot of ukrainian families in the united states are following this very closely as we are jennifer griffin national security correspondent for fox news jennifer thank you so much for getting us up to speed and up to date and and continue your great coverage thank you so much thank
0: you grinnell thank you
2: this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window
3: On Tuesday, President Biden delivered his first State of the Union address in front of a large, mostly maskless joint session of Congress. His main focuses were on the war raging in Ukraine, the growing inflation rate and the coronavirus pandemic, all topics affecting Americans on a daily basis. And here with me to discuss how the federal government will move through these issues is my colleague, Fox News congressional correspondent Aisha Hosni. How are you?
1: Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me. I'm doing so great. We, we were be... almost there. The week's almost over. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. Fabulous to be on with you. What was your take on seeing a mostly masked, unmasked House chamber?
1: We haven't seen that in quite a while here. What was that like? No, no. I'm sure you'll agree with me. It was a little jarring, right, to see all those smiling faces. I mean, people hugging maskless when just hours prior to that, everybody around here was still wearing a mask. I mean, the timing of this, Chad, uh, has raised a lot of eyebrows. You can't avoid it. Uh, The mask mandate dropping right before the State of the Union raised a lot of eyebrows. Now, to be clear, let's just make it perfectly clear: the decision was made by uh, the attending physician, right? It also coincided with the D.C. mask mandate being lifted. So, you know, Democrats obviously saying we're following the science, but you know, Republicans and critics saying, "Are you though? Are you following the science, or are you following politics?" So we had Republicans blasting Democrats, um, and and you'll remember, Chad. I mean, for a while. There's been this mask, very strict mask mandate in the House for months. And Republican lawmakers, some of them have been violating it um, and they've been racking up fines. I think Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, among the worst offenders with maybe even fines reaching up to $100,000 now. So we had a strict mask rule in the House. And then you walked over to the Senate, which is literally a two minute walk. And nothing. People are wandering all over the place in the Senate without a mask. So it's been a little wonky for a while here in the Capitol. No consistency. Um, And now you also have people, of course, asking... Why hasn't the Capitol reopened to the public? That's another question that's being raised by Republicans now. Speaker Pelosi kind of alluded to that today in her daily uh, press briefing that, look, it's up to the Capitol physician. So, um, yeah, a lot of questions, a lot of eyebrows. It was definitely a little jarring, I would say. I, I would say you would probably agree, too.
3: You know, it was interesting with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who you mentioned. You know, I saw a statement from the Ethics Committee just a couple of days ago And they were talking about, you know, they go in order here and she has racked up, as you say, you know, more than one hundred thousand dollars in fines. She can't pay this out of her, you know, what they call the MRA, which is the money that's devoted to each congressional office. It has to be her own her own money out of her own paycheck here. Uh, But the the notice from the Ethics Committee only mentioned that she had several violations on the 20th of January. And so they haven't caught up purportedly, there are probably other (laughs) violations, you know, of not wearing masks on the floor there with her. Uh, She tries to make a point about this. And a lot of people thought, had they not dialed this back about the masks, you know, they were threatening to kick people out not admit them to the House chamber and, you know, politics, we live in an age of performative politics here. Some people wondered if, uh, you know, someone like Green or maybe uh, Lauren Boebert uh, from Colorado, you know, might've tried to make a scene, you know, put something on Twitter, put something on Facebook because, you know, this is frankly good politics for a lot of Republican members, especially back in very conservative districts and say, oh, that mean Nancy Pelosi threw me out of the state of the union or something. You know, that's how this goes down. What was the other thing that, that caught your attention, maybe from a a policy perspective or something that was said during the State of the Union?
1: Sure, well, I think, you know, every American was watching this and thinking this is not a normal state of the Union you know usually a president goes in grades himself and then announces kind of his his or her wish list for the next year right but the war on Ukraine I mean that is what is dominating uh, the media coverage that's what's dominating uh, what the administration is talking about in those daily press briefings and the president wasn't just addressing the American people uh, with the State of the Union chat he was he, he had to address the Ukrainians. He had to address NATO. And quite frankly, he had to address President Putin, right? Because absolutely, President Putin was watching to see. Is the U.S. unified? Is the U.S. really taking this Ukraine situation seriously? And then we saw people wearing their uh, the Ukrainian flag colors on their lapels, um, just really showing support for the Ukrainian people. As far as policy went, I felt he had so many issues to get to, foreign, domestic, and the items on his wish list, I felt were old, w- maybe with a new name, right? So the president talked about Uh, something called Building a Better America, which really just turns out to be uh, him reviving Build Back Better with a new name. Um, He also mentioned the Bipartisan Innovation Act, which is actually just older legislation to make America more competitive with China. It's just rebranded. So he, he talked about crime and gun reform, which are all things that he wanted last year. So it was a lot of the same things that he wasn't able to check off and and get completed last year with a majority, right? Democrats hold the majority in the House and Senate, slim majorities. And and I think he just tried to revive everything and and to tell Congress, let's try it again.
3: Well, as I always say, it's always about the math. He only has about nine months right. before the end of the year here with this right. Congress. Uh, and moving some of these things, you got to get 60 votes in the Senate to, to move, move most of them, unless they use reconciliation. But still, they don't have the votes to move some of the social agenda items there. Uh, and you talk about the, the speech kind of being pirated by, you know, things halfway across the globe. You know, one of my favorite uh, quotations in politics is by Harold McMillan. The British Prime Minister, who said the most important factor in politics are events, so here we have this event, this Absolutely. war in Ukraine, and that changes, you know, you know, the contour of everything. But I was struck by things he did not talk about. A lot of these kind oh, of darlings to the left: student debt, uh-huh. climate change police reform. He did talk about crime and, and, and firearms and things of that nature. And some progressives were kind of disappointed in that. And so I was struck by the fact that a lot of Republicans said that this was kind of a liberal speech here, but many of those uh, you know, initiatives which are near and dear to the left and progressives, that was not in this speech. That's, this was not necessarily a liberal speech. What did you make of that, Aisha, especially as the president maybe tries gently to pivot going into the midterms?
1: Yeah, I think, um, look, moderates in the Democratic Party are um, feeling the pressure, right? Um, those that are up for re-election, they're getting a little worried as polling is is not in their favor as they head into the midterms. And I thought what was interesting, and, and, and maybe some folks missed it out there, but those responses, which was very strange. Usually people of the party of the president don't have a response to the State of the Union. They just let the president speak for himself. But this time, around, we had several responses from members of his own party. We had um, Rashida Tlaib, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, who uh, did her own state of the union and and really called out Democrats for failing to pass bill back better. Uh, She took a shot at uh, moderate Senator Joe Manchin, who pretty much was responsible for killing that bill back in December. Um, And I think that, you know, she also pressured Biden, like you said, to once again, fulfill some campaign promises like canceling student debt. You know, progressives want him to use his executive power, which he's not willing to do to cancel uh, the federal student loan debt. So absolutely, I thought it was a really interesting moment for the Democratic Party, which has had its fair share of internal struggles all year Long in in not only being able to pass legislation, but some, at sometimes even getting personal. I thought that was interesting, Chad. That
3: was a little bit different because, you know, last year, uh, Jamal Bowman, uh, a Democratic member, a freshman, you know, delivered a response. It's strange, first of all, to have a response from somebody right. who is a member of the, of the president's own party, but then to take on Mansion and Kirsten Sinema, that was different. There was also a response from Colin Allred, who's a Democratic congressman, and he, uh, you know, delivered the CBC response. So just the fact that there were these other responses, you know, to President Biden maybe tells you the state of the Democratic Party. You know, Tip O'Neill, the former House Speaker, used to always say, I don't have one caucus. I've got five. And that's kind of what House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden are dealing with right now. Just to wrap up here. What about inflation? Now, I remember just a couple Mm -hmm. of weeks ago where Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, said in March, we are going to tackle inflation in the Senate. And so far, inflation continues to go up. We see no bill per se about that. Events have interceded here with Ukraine. What's going to happen with inflation and how much of an albatross is that with the Democrats going into the midterm?
1: Well, I think inflation is going to be the new education when it comes to the GOP issue that they latch onto ahead of the midterms. Obviously, education was that kitchen table topic that worked out really well for uh, Republicans. Um, You know, Glenn Youngkin, it took him to the governor's mansion in Virginia. I think that um, not only COVID politics, you know, mask mandates and and, and, and vaccine mandates, um, but I think also inflation. I mean, there's a reason why Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds was chosen as the person to make the GOP response. You know, she's much like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. She's this rising star among conservatives. She's been a very loud critic of COVID mandates, but she also touched a lot on inflation. She touched on inflation, foreign policy in her response. And this strategy, this kitchen table topics, right? What is affecting the American wallet, the middle class, your average American in the heartland, people that I've grown up with in Indiana? What are they talking about? What do they want to see come out of Washington? And and right now it is all inflation. It's gas prices. It's, It's, you know, bills, energy bills rising. It's what's coming out of the pocketbook. So I think they're going to nail, they're going to hit that hard and they're going to try to connect with that audience. And I think, you know, obviously the GOP feels like they are the party that can connect with that audience.
3: You know, Democratic uh, Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio, who's running for the Senate, uh, he talked about some of these economic issues, uh, tax cuts, uh, the child tax credit, some of those things that were elements of Build Back Better and said, you know, if we put some of those things in to help the working person, you know, he's from Youngstown, Ohio, that part of the state, you know, the Rust Belt and 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 the heart of Trump company uh, country certainly in the 2016 election, those right. types of issues that the Democrats are able to do something on that great, but uh, you know the time is slipping through the hourglass here. Uh, they're going to deal with the confirmation of uh, you know Judge Jackson between now and the first of April. Yep. Uh, that's going to take a lot of oxygen away from the Senate, uh, let alone move something through the House. And historically, what they have found is that they need to kind of have this all etched out in the mind yeah. of the voters. Yeah. The die has to be cast by about May. And so right. there's not a lot of time here. And, and that's the problem over the summer well, months because people I, are and saying, I have- this is
1: where we are. And I have a question for you, Chad. I mean, obviously, you know, this was a very important speech for Democrats. It's the leader of their party. Um, Their their polling is is not faring well for them. Uh, They have a lot of internal issues. They have legislative issues. They haven't been able to show off very many wins um, on Capitol Hill. My question to you is, you know, some folks thought that the State of the Union should have been a reset should have been a new message, a re-energizing, uh, energizing the party. Did you walk away thinking that?
3: Not really. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, both parties immediately retreated to their corners. Some of it was in a State of the Union like this. You look for a flourish or something. You know, it could be rhetorical. Uh, Maybe, you know, calling out individual members in the House chamber there, members from the other party saying, I can work with you on border issues or I can work with you, you know, mention some people by name. And that really didn't come up. And, And that's why some people thought that this was a very... Biden esque speech. It was in the middle, so they needed to kind of do that. You know, if they go out and talk about defunding the police or other left wing ideas, that's not going to work. Uh, It was reasonably well delivered. The actual mechanics of the speech were good. You know, the president sometimes is criticized on that score, so that wasn't uh, really a problem. Uh, Although Mitch McConnell flagged the fact that he said the only time Iran was mentioned was a mistake. He said the Iranians, when he should have been talking about the Ukrainians, that was just a, a verbal flub during the speech. But that said, this was not a Reset. It wasn't something dramatic, and I wonder if it's hard to do a reset like that politically in the middle of a pandemic, especially with a war like the nature of Ukraine raging in Europe. That's going to be, you know, very hard, and that's the that's the challenge that Democrats face. But you know what? Weird things happen in election years. Obviously, things are trending okay. uh, toward the Republicans here, but sometimes they can step in it. Uh, we've, we've seen Republicans do this before, and it's just not Democrats, uh, Republicans. It's the idea that you know we saw Republicans in 2010 and 2012 nominate candidates for the Senate that just could not win. They were too extreme. And there's some concern about some of the candidates and some of the people running there too. And will that backfire? But the, the margins, as you well know, are so narrow, it is going to be very hard for Democrats to hold on to both the House and the Senate.
1: And we this have fault. no idea how long this war on Ukraine goes. I mean, it's it's feeling very eerily similar to what happened in Afghanistan. And, and and that sort of, you know, people moved on fairly quickly from that. I just don't see this going away anytime soon. I think it's going to drag and it is not going to look good for, you know, members of the Democratic Party that, that really need to get back to work on domestic issues and, and really show the American people look, this is what we've done, and this is what we can continue to do for you.
3: And you're right. There's going to be limited news oxygen for them to talk about yep. these things. And this cuts two ways. Sometimes if you're, you know, you're the party in charge and the voters aren't pleased with you, then this suddenly takes the, the spotlight off of you for some reason. But it also makes it harder to get things through. And as you say, you know, if this moves further into Europe or, God forbid, something far worse or America gets dragged into this, the one thing that I keep hearing and I have talked about with members and, and and other national security experts is what happens if there's a shooting across the border, or you know, we've got thousands of American troops now in Eastern Europe and Poland yeah. and, and close to the border, and you have a Mogadishu type situation, or something worse, you know, Archduke Ferdinand or something. This is the way these things happen. You know, there's a line from Stephen King where he said there were too many shaky hands holding too many lighters around too many fuses. And so little things can happen here that can make this into a conflagration.
1: Well, in the, in the world we're living in, Chad, I mean, anything can happen in the next nine months. I mean, look at what we've gone through.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Just since
1: COVID, you know, just since, I mean, remember and what happened to right impeachment before trials. COVID? Yes, with, exactly. <laughs>
3: exactly. Well, Harold McMillan, events, right? All right. Well, Aisha, this was great. It was fabulous to talk to you, and I hope we'll have you back you again as sometime well.
1: soon.
3: At Evernorth Health Services,
2: Tomorrow, on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, the International Criminal Court has launched an immediate criminal investigation of possible war crimes against the Ukrainian people. And what do the Texas primary results tell us about what to expect from other 2022 midterm elections? Until then, I'm Grinnell Scott. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington.